and open your Bible to Genesis chapter 23. If you're using one of the little black church Bibles, um, you'll find it on page 15. And you're going to, um, it's going to benefit you greatly if you have that open in front of you this morning. Quite a few chapters which we'll be dipping in and out of. And so it's going to be really helpful for you to have that in front of you uh, to follow along uh, as we go through them. Coming to the final sermon in our series called Promise. Good Friday we thought about the the death of Christ. And for those of us who have experienced the death of loved ones, we know that death disrupts our lives in many different ways. Death disrupts our lives in many different ways. It disrupts our home, a place we once sought. Do you guys need me to use a handheld? (laughs) Disrupts our home, a place which once brought a sense of being settled and secure. Our home now feels like a strange place, feels like an impermanent place. Death disrupts family life. Family life is now marked by a sense that someone is missing. Family gatherings feel smaller. Death disrupts our future. Future seems lonelier. It feels less purposeful, more fragile and uncertain. In Genesis 23 to 25 this morning, which we're in, we come to the end of Abraham and Sarah's lives. These chapters tell us about their deaths. And we are faced with the questions, the question, does God's promises die with them? Does God's promises die with them? On Good Friday, we remembered the death of Christ in our place for our sins. We ended with his burial. But today, Easter Sunday, we rejoice in his bodily resurrection, don't we? A resurrection, as we'll see, that guarantees that God's promises don't die with Abraham and Sarah's death, nor do they die with ours either. A resurrection that guarantees that God's promises don't die with them or with us. What we're going to see this morning together is this, the resurrection of Jesus secures, guarantees that God's promises go beyond the grave. The first thing we see together this morning then is this, Jesus' resurrection secures for us, firstly, a permanent home, a permanent home. Uh, Verses 20 to 24 in chapter um, 23 Um, Sorry, just at the end of chapter 22, verses 20 uh, to 24, really this little short genealogy, which gives us a glimpse that the promises do continue beyond Abraham. We see one name emphasized in particular in verse 23, the name of Rebekah. Okay, put a a, a place marker there, a bookmarker there. She's going to be central to God's promises in these chapters, continuing on beyond Abraham and Sarah, as we'll see in a moment. Then we look down at verses 1 to 2 of chapter 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Two things we see in chapter 23 here. Deep grief, but great hope. We see the deep grief of Abraham. Abraham and Sarah were married at least 60 years, if not a lot longer. 
They had been through so much together. They had left their homeland for Canaan, experiencing great joys in the form of Isaac's birth, but also great pain and sorrow in their waiting and in their failures, particularly Abraham's. The pain of Sarah's barrenness. Yet through their old age and their flaws, they both serve as a great example of faith for us. That's what Hebrews 11 teaches us. Faith that's expressed in a radical all-out obedience. And so Sarah's death, understandably for Abraham, brings deep mourning and weeping. Abraham understandably mourns and weeps for his wife. He's just lost his wife whom he loves. Isaac has lost his mother and we see his grief in chapter 24, verse 67. Death is a disruption to God's design. Death is unnatural. It's not natural. Death is not a natural part of our world. It was never meant to be. Death is unnatural. It's not part of God's good world that he created. It came into the world through humanities, through our first parents, through our sin. It's the penalty for that sin. Yet the good news of Good Friday and Easter Sunday in particular Easter Sunday and the resurrection of Jesus, is that death has been defeated. Death has been disarmed. In rising from the dead, Jesus overcame death so that all who are united to him by faith would have a resurrection like him, who they would live eternally. They would one day be resurrected physically, bodily, when he returns. Romans 6, 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yet although Jesus has defeated death, he's disarmed it as we just sang, he has not yet fully destroyed it. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that the last enemy is death. So death still continues to disrupt our lives. From these verses we see that bodily death is to be expected. You don't need me to tell you that. But sometimes we live as if we are immortal. We're not. Bodily death is still to be expected until Jesus returns. So let me ask you this this morning. Are you prepared to die? If like Abraham and Sarah, your faith is in God's promises, your faith is in Christ, then you have, we have eternal life and hope beyond the grave. But if you have no faith in Christ this morning, then you are heading for eternal death and hell. It doesn't have to be that way. The resurrection of Christ secures a future where you can live eternally if you would turn from sin and turn to him in faith. These verses also reveal to us that weeping and mourning are natural and right responses to death. We don't have to hold back our tears. (coughs) Death is unnatural. And we should draw alongside one another in that weeping and in that mourning as Romans calls us to. We see deep grief, yes, but... They are not without hope. We are not without hope. We see deep grief, but we also see great hope. In verse 3, we see, out of chapter 23, we see Abraham do what many of us have to do when a loved one dies, get busy making funeral and burial arrangements. That's what we see throughout the rest of chapter 23. Yet this is no ordinary burial. This is no ordinary grave. It will be a grave that points forward to a future home. It will be a grave full of great hope. Why spend so many verses 
The rest of chapter 23, speaking about the purchase of a place to bury Sarah. Why do these verses stress the fact that Abraham purchases and now possesses a piece of property in Canaan? Because Abraham, in purchasing this piece of land, in burying Sarah there, is saying, I have faith in God's promises. I believe he will give us this land. This is where our future is. This is where our family's future lies. When we think about where we'd like to be buried, a bit of a morbid thought, but when we think about where we'd like to be buried, we want to be buried at home, don't we? We want to be buried often where we grew up, perhaps maybe in a family burial plot. That was the case with Abraham and Sarah. Abraham would have took Sarah back to Ur. Remember, they are strangers in this land. But that's not home anymore. Home for them, for us, is where God's promises are. That's why he buries her here. And we've seen those promises. God will give Abraham and his descendants the whole land. Yet Abraham in verse 4 of chapter 23 acknowledges they're still strangers and exiles. They're still sojourners and foreigners. They are blow-ins. They're still living in tents with no permanent home. They have no permanent stake in the land. Yet God has been granting a foothold in the land. We saw Abraham get his water rights a couple of weeks ago. Okay, If you buy a piece of land, it is crucial to have water rights to that piece of land. He gets the well through the treaty with Abimelech. Now he buys a field. So he's slowly gaining, by the grace of God, a foothold in the promised land. Yes, Abraham will bury Sarah in grief. He will mourn and he will weep, but it will also be a burial full of hope, full of faith, faith that one day the whole land would be given to them, faith that one day God would fully fulfill his promise to them. And that's shown in those who come after him. Abraham, Isaac, Rebekah, Leah, Jacob, and Joseph all get buried in exactly the same place, with the same faith, with the same hope of a future permanent home here. Yet as we read on in our Bibles, we know that their hope for a permanent home was not ultimately for an earthly home or an earthly piece of land. Even they were looking for something more. Even they knew that God's promises were bigger than the land of Canaan. They were looking by faith for a permanent home, a heavenly home. And that's the same home that we get to hope in, that we get to look forward to if we, our faith is in Christ. Hebrews 11 tells us this of them. It says, Hebrews 9, 11 verse 9, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, that is Abraham, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And then in verses 13 to 16 of the same chapter, these, that is the saints, including Abraham and Sarah, died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, if they had been thinking of the land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. 
Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Loved ones, you and I as Christians are also sojourners and exiles in this world. We too will experience death. We too will be buried. We too as Christians long for a heavenly home, a secure home, a safe home. No longer strangers, but settled citizens, a permanent, eternal, heavenly home. That's what Jesus' resurrection has made possible for us. This grave here, our graves, has a, have a future because of Jesus' empty grave. Because of Jesus' empty grave, our earthly bodies will be resurrected and we will live in a fully resurrected, not just piece of land, but world. We will live in the eternal heavenly city that will one day come down from heaven to earth at Christ's return. Jesus' resurrection this morning secures and seals that for us. Don't you long for that eternal permanent home? In the presence of God, face to face with Christ as we sang. If our faith is in Christ this morning, we can look to that permanent home. We can look forward with hope. Few things make us feel more homeless and strange in this world than losing a loved one, right? Standing at the graveside, going back to a more empty house. Yet when our faith is in Christ, we can face death with hope. When loved ones who have faith in Christ face death, we can bury them with hope. When we feel homeless as Christians, in this world as we encounter sin and, and death and evil, we can endure in, in obedience and in faith as we look forward to the world to come. And that's a home that won't be empty. It's a home that will be full. It's the second thing we see in these verses. Jesus' resurrection secures for us a permanent home and secondly, a big family. So chapter 24 is all about so chapter 23 was about Sarah's death and burial. Now chapter 24 look forward, looks forward to the next generation of this family. Chapter 24 is all about the, the marriage of Isaac to Rebecca, um, whom we've already seen just at the end of chapter 22. So remember the key parts of the promise way back in Genesis 12, a people, a place, the land, which is what 23 is about. And now we see the promise of a people alongside the promise of blessing. Those were the three key components to the promise. A people, a place, and living under God's blessing. We've seen the land secured, now we see the people secured. Verse 1 of chapter 24, Abraham is old. He's well advanced in years. He's kicking on a bit. And he sets about to ensure Isaac finds a wife. He sends his most senior servant out back to Ur of the Chaldeans to find one for him. And he does that because he desires to keep the people of God uh, undefiled and, and pure. They remember, the people who live in the land of Canaan are sinful, are wicked, so Abraham doesn't want Isaac to take a wife from them. He sends a servant back to where he comes from to find a wife from his country and his kindred. And note that at, at the beginning of verse 6 and verse 8, Abraham stresses that under no circumstances must Isaac go back to Abraham's homeland. His wife must come from there, but he must, mustn't go back there because the promises are in the land. The promises are in the land. His wife must come to 
him. And Isaac later on thanks his dad for saving him from having to live near his in-laws, right? Abraham sends out his servant to find a wife based on, he sends him out based on verse 7, the promise of God. God swore he would keep his promises. So this is the basis on which he sends a servant out and he sends him out for the purpose of offspring, the purpose of the promise. This is not primarily about fixing Isaac's loneliness because his mom has died. It's about ensuring that the promised line continues. One big thing we see throughout chapter 24 is that this is all brought about by the providential hand of the Lord. Verse 7, an angel of the Lord will go before Abraham's servant. Abraham promises that to him. We see Abraham's servant throughout these verses depend on worship and acknowledge the leading of the Lord and that the Lord has prospered his way in verses 27 and 56. And we also see the other parties involved here acknowledge that this marriage is of the Lord. Laban and Bethuel in verses 50 to 51. Uh, this is Rebekah's brother and father. Okay, so the, the servant turns up. He establishes Rebekah as the chosen wife. He then goes before the brother and the father. And they say in verses 50 to 51, this thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. So offsets Abraham's servant in verse 10. How will he know who the wife is? Well, he sets a test to discern her character. The test is he will go to a well and whichever woman, whichever lady comes and offers him a drink and his camels a drink is the person who is to marry Isaac. Who does he find? Well, he finds Rebecca, who's from Abraham's country and kindred. Long story short, 66 verses short, you skip to verse 67, they get married. Verse 67, then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. All through this chapter, God has provided, God has orchestrated this. God is in control of this. All of this is showing us that God is securing and ensuring that the promises will continue. So what does this marriage, what do these 67 verses have to teach us? Well, several important things. Firstly, that marriage actually is not the most important note here. It's not the major note here. Multiplication is. If you go to verses 60, we see the blessing that uh, Rebecca's family gives to her. Verse 60, and they blessed Rebecca and said to her, our sister, may you produce thousands of ten thousands and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. So if my sister ever gets married or you have a sister and she ever gets married, you know what to write in the wedding card then. They blessed her and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands. Chapter 24 is about more than marriage. It's about the continuation of God's covenant offspring. It's about ensuring that the promise of offspring is fulfilled just like the promise of the land. Think about it here. There's essentially only one person in this family right now. Sarah's just died. Abraham's about to die. There's only one son of promise here. In the face of it, this family feels really fragile. They are shrinking. They're not growing. 
But God keeps his promises that the nations will come from this family. That promise is ultimately filled in the offspring, Christ. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, he is gathering for himself a multitude, a family, not just of tens of thousands, but a multitude that cannot be numbered. Christ's resurrection paves way for the bodily resurrection of the whole global church in the world to come. That's no small family. That's a big family. That's a big home. So if you belong to Jesus, you are part of that family. Married or unmarried kids or no kids, it's a family that's now tangibly expressed through the local church, and it will be an eternal reality in the world to come. And at times the church can feel fragile, can't it? We look around and we think the church is shrinking. But by God's grace and providence, it is multiplying. It is growing. This family, which we all get to be part of as Christians, this family has a future just like this one. This marriage also models a kind of love and comfort we can find in our union with Christ and in his family, the church. We see throughout this chapter. Another thing these verses teach us is that this is not primarily a how-to-find-a-wife passage, okay? Although it's not less than that, as we'll explore in a moment. It highlights several key things when it comes to walking by faith. Firstly, obedience, a proactive obedience. Walking, not waiting by faith. Okay, Abraham doesn't wait for a wife to fall out of the sky for Isaac. He sends a servant to go out and find one. They display proactive obedience. This is how we should approach obedience as well. Not waiting for some kind of special revelation or guidance, but an obedience that just gets on with obeying God's commands based on what he's already revealed. Second Peter tells us he's revealed everything we need for life and godliness. Obedience and dependence. We see the prayer of the servant in verse 12. He goes through all of this in the prayerful dependence upon the Lord. We see holiness. They're not willing to compromise. Okay, don't take Isaac back there. And if you can't find the wife, don't take one from Canaan. There's a no compromising attitude to this obedience here. They are not willing for there to be intermarriage. Find a wife, but not at all costs. Find a wife in line with God's commands. We see worship as well, verse 26. And throughout the whole thing, we see trust. Trust that God will work it all out in the end in a way that leads to blessing. That's what our walk should be marked by. Proactive obedience, prayerful dependence, holiness, worship, and trust. Another thing we see here in these verses, third thing is that central to marital love is God's love. Four times in, these, in this chapter, it's mentioned that God's steadfast love and faithfulness are upon Abraham. Four times, verses 12, 14, 27, and 49. Steadfast love and faithfulness are uniquely mentioned in this chapter with regards to how God has loved Abraham. It reminds us that God's steadfast love and faithfulness is behind all of his promises. These are not cold, empty, thrown from a distance promises. These are the love of a God who is steadfast and who loves us and who is faithful. And we can experience that love through faith in Christ. 
that it's mentioned multiple times in this chapter about marriage in a chapter about marriage is no mistake. Marital love, if you're married, our marriages are meant to be modeled after and flow from that steadfast love and faithfulness. And it's meant to serve as a picture of that steadfast love and faithfulness. Another thing we see here is that if you're married, if you're married just like Isaac and Rebecca, your marriage is by the providence of God. It's by the providence of God, and it's for a greater purpose than just companionship. Okay, it's not less than companionship. Verse 67 tells us that Isaac and Rebekah enjoy sexual intimacy, and Isaac is comforted by Rebekah after the loss of his mother. But it has a greater purpose, that multiplication purpose, as we've already mentioned, and as we've explored in previous weeks. For us now, as we progress from the Old Testament and into the New Testament, that multiplication is primarily spiritual in the form of making disciples, not physical. And then this chapter is about helping us to find a marriage partner. In female terms, I'm going to speak in female terms here, but it goes both ways, okay? Um, And I say this all in the context of previous sermons throughout this past year on marriage and singleness and divorce and remarriage. Okay, so with all that said, if you want to listen back to any of that, and you can do that, So what I'm about to say is all within the context of those things. Firstly, if you're looking for a wife, she must be a believer. The principle here of not intermarrying outside of God's people goes forward into the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 7. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. In the Old Testament, the danger with marrying outside of God's people is that they would drag them into worship of other gods. She must be a believer. He must be a believer. She should be a woman of character. Verse 16, if you look down. She is sexually pure. She's a virgin. She's not known any man. She has pursued and been obedient with regards to sexual purity. Let me just say this. In a sinful world, many of us aren't sexually pure as we enter into marriage. Yet God redeems and restores the sexually broken and removes their shame. That's what the gospel does. Yet sexual purity should be pursued and should be held uh, highly and honored. She is humble and servant-hearted in the way that she serves uh, Abraham's servant, as as in how she gives him water to drink and gives his camels to drink. Notice how, how... keen she is. She, she runs around. She makes sure they get watered. She's also hospitable. In verse 23, she invites Abraham's servant back into their house, and her family is also hospitable. She's submissive to the Lord in what's going on here in verse chapter 24, as is her family. They're willing to submit to the will of the Lord in here. Verse 57, she is willing to go She's willing to leave her family and homeland for the sake of this promise. Matthew 19, anyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So if you are pursuing marriage, marry someone who is willing to give their life with you wherever that might take you for the sake of God's mission to make disciples. 
Make sure your marriage is about more than playing house. But about living for that future permanent home and investing in God's big family, the church. Make sure she's beautiful in character. Yes, Rebecca here is beautiful in appearance. This is passage makes clear. But her beauty and appearance is surpassed only by her beauty and character. She's humble. She's hospitable. She's submissive to the Lord's commands. Proverbs 31.30 Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So if you currently are, or at some point in the future, find yourself pursuing marriage, recognizing we're all works in progress, right? Be this kind of person. Marry this kind of person. Prioritize godliness and character and someone who is willing to pursue the Great Commission with you. Who's willing to go and make disciples in the home and in the church and the nations with you. Yet, recognize that marriages, including this one, will encounter difficulty. Okay, You read on in Genesis, this marriage is no picture-perfect marriage. Recognize that marriage can be difficult. So prepare to work hard by the grace of God to maintain your marriage and keep your vows. So what does the future look like for this newly married couple? What does the future hold for God's people and for us? That's the third thing we see together this morning. Jesus' resurrection secures for us a permanent home, a big family, and a blessed future. Okay, remember the three strands of the promise, people, place, and now blessing. He's hitting on all three here. We see the promise of blessing back in chapter 12. We see the experience of blessing in chapter 24, verse 1. If you look down, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Verse 8 of chapter 25, Abraham is blessed by living to a good old age. He lived a full life. And now in chapter 25, verse 11, I know I'm moving around fast. Chapter 25, verse 11, the blessing is passed on to Isaac. God blessed Isaac, his son. What is that blessing? What does it mean to be blessed by God? Was to live life as it was always meant to be lived. In God's presence, under God's rule, worshipping him and obeying his commands. For Abraham, God's blessing goes beyond the grave. If you look at verse 7 of chapter 25, he dies, that's not the end. He's gathered to his people. It's a phrase that we see with Jacob's burial as well. There is something beyond the grave. There is blessing beyond the grave. His funeral, like Sarah's, is a funeral of faith. <coughs> Hebrews 11, 39 to 40, which will be up on the screen for you. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect. This burial is just the beginning. This burial is just the beginning. For Abraham and for us, burial is just the beginning. It's not the end. It's the beginning of a better future, of better promises, of a blessed future. But, and here's the harsh reality of 25, the blessing only comes to those who belong to the promised offspring. 
This is the stark reality of these final verses. For them then, that was through connection to Isaac. Verse 5 in chapter 25 tells us, Abraham gives his inheritance only to one of his sons. He gives it all to Isaac. Yes, he still has a heart for his other sons. He still gives them gifts, but he gives his inheritance to his promised son. For us now, that person is Christ. All those and only those who are in Christ receive an eternal inheritance, which is to be revealed when Jesus returns. If you do not belong to Jesus, then believe in him today and inherit a permanent home, a big family, and a blessed eternal future. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, verses which are so relevant for Easter Sunday say this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's what Jesus' resurrection gives us, guarantees us, secures for us. The resurrection of Jesus secures God's promises beyond the grave. Secure a permanent home, a big family, and a blessed future. So let's turn from our sin, from our doubts, from our fears, either for the first time or as those who already know Christ, let's turn from those things and turn to him this morning again in fresh faith. Recognizing all that his resurrection has secured for us, guarantees us, and will one day be fully and finally true of us. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and recognize that we are so unworthy to receive all of these promises that you have given to us. But yet, in Christ, you do count us worthy. You freely offer us to be part of this story, to be part of these promises. You freely offer us this kind of future. Father, help us to recognize that. Help us to believe that. Help us to walk by faith as sojourners and exiles in this time as we await for that future home. Help us to experience family both now in the church and look forward to that multitude in the world to come. Father, we just pray for help. So often it's hard to live for you faithfully and wisely to obey your commands. But we thank you for grace. We thank you for your spirit. And we thank you that you're with us at all times. In Jesus' name, amen.